Hello, and welcome to the next installment of the SOF Heyman Bookshelf, a podcast celebrating recent work by faculty members in the arts and sciences at Columbia University. I'm Constantine Lignos. Our next episode this season, celebrating recent work by Nadia Abu al Haj, is drawn from a panel brought together on November 17th, 2022, to discuss her recently published book, Combat Trauma, Imaginaries of War and Citizenship in Post-9-11 America. Nadia Abu al Haj is a professor in the departments of anthropology at Barnard College and Columbia University. She also serves as the co-director of the Center for Palestine Studies and chair of the governing board of the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities at Columbia University. She's also the vice president and vice chair of the board at the Institute for Palestine Studies in Washington, D.C. In her new book, Abu al-Hajj weaves together medicine, science, and politics to explore the concept of PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder, and its diagnosis among the veterans of America's wars. She tracks how a convergence of feminist activism against sexual violence and Reagan's right-wing war on crime transformed the idea of PTSD into a condition of victimhood, shifting veterans' trauma away from a political space of reckoning with guilt and complicity to one that casts them as blameless victims of a hostile public upon their return home. Here is Nadia Abu al Haj reading from the introduction to her new book. Let's listen. The national conversation about the post-9-11 wars, such as it is, has been mediated to a great extent through representations of the psychic life of the American soldier come veteran. The starting point for this book is to ask, with what consequence? What does war appear to be when it is discussed, represented, and grasped primarily through the lens of the soldier now home, living with PTSD, at risk of suicide, or grappling with moral injury? And what might be the crucial political conversations that simply in failing to appear are excluded from public debate, and consciousness when so much of the focus is on the trauma suffered by American troops. By exploring the figure of the traumatized soldier in public culture, I aim to destabilize received truths about America's post-9-11 wars among liberals and conservatives alike. What if the truth is that the wars have been, in fact, ubiquitous in American consciousness, but appear through the figure of the soldier rather than the actual conduct of war on the ground and the subjects and forms of life that he has put in harm's way? What if the ceaseless demand for public recognition of and improved care for the traumatized soldier is not an unequivocal ethical good, as it might seem to be when measured against the supposed neglect and warehousing of veterans in the aftermath of the American war in Vietnam? What if this incessant demand that attention be paid, that we must do a better job of recognizing and caring for the troops, is among the incitements to American militarism and helping attach the American public to the virtue of the soldier and thereby to the project of war. So there are two primary threads that pull through the book. One is the genealogy of the concept of PTSD and its various shifts over the past 40 years or more. And the second is a reading of the ethics, politics, and obligations of citizenship in the post 9-11 era that find form in and through the figure of the traumatized soldier. The book begins with me revisiting the conception of soldier trauma, initially named post-Vietnam syndrome. It was key to formulating PTSD as a psychiatric diagnosis in 1980. Reading somewhat against the grain of the existing literature, I argue that it was a radical political concept that is worth pausing over and revisiting today. Veterans of the war were traumatized, so the argument went, by what they had done on the killing fields of Vietnam. That is, they were traumatized by having perpetrated atrocities and healing the self and repairing the world. 
that is an anti-war politics, were understood to be cut from the same cloth. In the 1980s, there was a shift to understanding PTSD as what has come to be known as a condition of victimhood. That is, the trauma subject was a victim, not an author of violence. And that shift was born of the convergence of various political projects, conservative and progressive, which I could talk about in more detail, but I won't go into now. But basically, there was a convergence between a kind of white anti-crime movement and a feminist activist politics defending women and girls who had been victims of sexual assault. By the end of the 1980s, PTSD no longer had room, at least not officially or formally, for perpetrator trauma. Post 9-11, we see shifts again. Not all trauma subjects are victims of violence. Soldiers are often traumatized by having killed, destroyed villages, or witnessed such destruction, DOD and VA clinicians argue, and existing clinical models don't treat that kind of trauma very well. Recognizing the trauma of being an agent of violence here, however, is not a political critique in contrast to what it was during the American War in Vietnam. In its starkest terms, the argument goes, killing is what a soldier is trained to do. He is being injured by doing his job. Treating trauma is now just one more link in the institutional edifice of making war. So what might any of this have to do with the ethics, politics, and obligations of citizenship? The final chapters of the book explore contexts in which the traumatized soldier and the figure of the traumatized soldier, often referred to as the morally injured soldier, appears in American society writ large. I look at this industry or institutions of care, churches and charities and other NGOs who engage and treat veterans suffering trauma or moral injury. And for example, they reframe their suffering as born of the perception of having sinned or as born of encounters with radical evil. A lot of this is very Christian theological in its foundation. And I look at a public discourse about soldiers, so-called civilians, which I'll come back to, and the civil-military divide that is argued to cleave the nation in two, a discourse that calls upon civilians to reach across that divide, listen to, and care for those who have returned from war. And I'm going to just read again very briefly from this. I start with the words of a philosopher, Nancy Sherman, who teaches at Georgetown, who's written about both the civil-military divide and moral injury. We have been at war while the country has been at the mall, Sherman reports having been told by soldiers. That is a well-rehearsed trope, an accusation. In Sherman's reading, the civil-military divide has consequences for all of us, as she writes. For many of us, and I'm quoting, don't know how to begin a conversation with a veteran, how to ask where she's been and what she's been through and how things are for her now, unquote. And yet Sherman goes on that it's important that each of us has a moral obligation to engage in this reintegration of American service members. She writes, the military civilian walls have to come down. It's critical for the moral healing of soldiers, unquote. Or take the following address again to an audience that is presumed to be American civilians by David Wood, who's an American journalist who embedded with, I'm pretty sure it was a Marine battalion in Afghanistan. After arguing that healing takes place in the context of community, and he's talking about healing from moral wounds, Wood instructs his readers on how to get involved. Quote, let's set aside the question of war itself. He begins. He then goes on to describe a program developed by a psychologist at Harvard. Quote, her idea was to match veterans with volunteer civilian listeners for a long session of uninterrupted intentional listening, unquote. Intentional listening, he continues, is listening with validation. It is listening without judgment, saying, yeah, that was fucked up, but also I honor your service. So this call, which I'm just giving you snippets of here, upon the so-called American civilian, that is the citizen who has not gone off to war and who it is presumed cannot possibly begin to fathom what it is like, operates through a series of figures and grammars. And I just want to pause and say, 
the fact that the term civilian is used so commonly in the U.S. to refer to people who've never experienced war says a lot about the kind of imperial hubris and power of being able to fight your wars on someone else's soil. But let me look at the, the figures and grammar. First, there is the figure of the American civilian. Innocent of the evil that exists in the world, the term that is innocence operates here neither is mere description nor is ascribed virtue. It's an accusation. It is a sign of naivete that is made possible by the privilege of not having stepped up and gone off to war. Second, there is an epistemological conceit in this call upon the American civilian, right, of what Annette Dvorka has called, quote, the era of the witness, unquote. Only the survivor, originally the Holocaust survivor in her account, of course, that is a survivor squarely positioned as a victim can know evil, and she stands as a witness to that evil before the world. But here in this discourse, it is the soldier who stands in as the survivor qua witness. It is he who speaks the truth and evil of war, and he who is entitled to an audience. The soldier then is positioned here as if he is a victim. And finally, there is the grammar of identity politics that operates implicitly in this call upon the public to reach across the civil-military divide. The soldier is a subject formed by a constitutive injury, the injury of war, the injury of American civilians who sent him off to war and continued to go shopping at the mall. Taken together, I show what emerges as the discourse of moral obligation towards American troops that sidelines and silences the possibility of sustained political critique of U.S. empire and war. And in so doing, it extrudes from serious consideration, or what I call, barring from Stanley Cavell, from acknowledgement, the actual victims of American military violence and the moral obligation and political debt that all Americans, soldiers, and so-called civilians alike owe them. Next, we'll hear from Miriam Tickton, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the CUNY Graduate Center in New York City. From 2016 to 2018, Miriam Tickton was the Chair of Anthropology at the New School for Social Research. Prior to that, she was the co-director of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility, and before that, the Director of Gender Studies. She received her PhD in Anthropology at Stanford University and the School for Advanced Studies in the Social Sciences in Paris, France, and an MA in English Literature from Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. She was also a Fellow in the Society of Fellows at Columbia University. Let's listen to Miriam Tickton. Near the end of the book, in a sentence buried at the end of the page, Nadia writes, Stacey Pearsall, a combat photographer in Iraq, reports being unable to get herself to say, and I quote, that Iraq was not worth it because then I would be diminishing the sacrifices my friends made on the battlefield, end of quote. But, says Nadia, I have no problem saying it. It was not worth it. So this is an incredibly difficult thing to say publicly, almost impossible, as the book demonstrates. American soldiers and their wars have become sacred. The book is about precisely this, how U.S. militarism and imperialism have become untouchable, uncritiquable. The book tells the story of how wars and soldiers have become protected and depoliticized. So while the title is Combat Trauma, the book is about trauma and PTSD only insofar as it tracks how this category and medical diagnosis has helped to take away the possibility of an anti-imperial and anti-militaristic politics. So there are other books that track the genealogy of the category itself, but Nadia's book is really about how militarism has been depoliticized by way of trauma. So it's about militarism more than it is about trauma. So she gives us a fascinating and skillfully 
thoroughly researched account of how PTSD as both a medical and political category has been transformed into a diagnosis that renders soldiers and armies untouchable. That is, after the Vietnam War, a diagnosis of PTSD was treated by anti-war protests. That is, healing was seen to be about changing the politics. But since the 1980s, and especially after 9-11, PTSD has worked to cleave off the harm soldiers do from responsibility and critique, turning it into a moral question rather than a political one. This is a fascinating and twisted story. For instance, she tells how the victims' rights movements, which is kind of a white dominance, white supremacist-inspired movement supported by Nixon and Reagan, how these came together with a second wave feminists who were arguing for the recognition of innocent victims of rape and sexual assault. And together they created PTSD as a category of only victims, not perpetrators. So there's so many compelling parts to the book. The idea is of moral injury, moral repair, for instance. But in the time that I have, I want to pull out uh, the two themes that I see as guiding the book. Ultimately, I really do think this book is about American innocence and how it gets established and maintained in the contemporary era. I mean, to be sure, there are books about how American innocence is established, recovered after the Civil War and into Reconstruction. But this is about American innocence now. Nadia tracks several moments in the establishment of innocence. And I want to point to how they do different and sometimes contradictory work, yet ultimately come together to establish a lack of culpability. So I want to think with you more closely about how this process works. So on the one hand, innocence works as a form of contagion actually, it gets transmitted to others. Those around innocence become innocent. On the other, it works as a form of containment. The guilt is contained so the majority can stay innocent. So more specifically, Nadia explains the creation of the category of innocent victim in the victims' rights movements, where, as I just mentioned, white folks who were resentful of the gains of the civil rights movement came together to claim that they were victims of street crime, working as strange bedfellows with feminists interested in establishing the legal innocence of those subject to sexual assault. Nadia points to the iconic figure in bringing these all together, this kind of strange group of people. It's the innocent girl child. So kind of radical or second wave feminists use the child subject to incest by her father to convince the public that victims of sexual assault suffered psychological harm. This was central to establishing the innocence of the victim full stop and establishing the victim as the subject of trauma. I'm suggesting that this innocence associated with the child ended up working like a form, again, of contagion. Those associated with it, around it, close to it, in collaboration with it, were rendered innocent too. So women victims of rape, but also white victims, again, of street crime, who all came together under the category of trauma as victims of trauma. Trauma served as the umbrella category for innocence. So if innocence here works by way of contagion, later in the book, Nadia tells us about the innocent civilian and how this category is juxtaposed against the soldier who may not be innocent, but is still always a victim. So here, innocence works to contain harm, but most importantly, it contains the enactment of responsibility. As she writes, civilian innocence is seen as a form of privilege. Those sent off to war cannot afford this privilege. And for that very reason, civilians need to respect them and hold off on judgment. So while innocence sometimes functions as a morally superior position, in this case, it functions as a form of moral and epistemic lack, where civilians simply do not know, cannot know the harms of war, and therefore cannot judge. 
So innocence here is a position of impotence. And in this form, it contains both harm and responsibility. Interestingly, the key to the functioning of innocence is the concept of cultural relativism. And there's such an interesting discussion of cultural relativism here. We each have our own moral systems. So the military have their own culture with its own moral codes, and no one outside this culture can judge. Innocence is established for the American population then by way of the workings of cultural relativism, which works to separate and contain. So I want to now just turn to the second and perhaps most important theme of the book. If innocence is the problem, then responsibility is the answer. And throughout, Nadia is trying to get us as people who live in or participate in life in the U.S. to take responsibility for U.S. imperialism and militarism. She moves from thinking about the individual and collective responsibility of soldiers who kill, maim, torture, and so on, and how they're absolved of political responsibility by way of biomedicine. She tracks this and all the way to collective responsibility as articulated in particular by Hannah Arendt. This is really the crux of the matter. Nadia works to create space for us to articulate our own disagreement, for us to make this a political problem, our political problem again, not a moral one. Healing from trauma, as she continually shows us, is about political healing, involves changing the politics that creates this condition. It involves, in Arendt's words, caring for the world, which is both a political act and also an imaginative one. So I'd love to push here on where Nadia ends on the imaginative part of what this process might look like. Projects of reparations and repair are two ways that people have been thinking about collective responsibility in other contexts. So what shape might collective responsibility for U.S. militarism take? There are other positions available by which to think about relations of power and questions of justice that center collective responsibility. And these include, for instance, the idea of implication. And this is kind of Rothberg I'm thinking of. We're implicated in the system, even if differently so. You know, what networks are we implicated? What activities do we participate in, even indirectly, that perpetuate this system? There's the idea of structural beneficiaries. I'm thinking of Bruce Robbins here. That is, even if one did not create the system, certain people benefit from it now and inherit the advantages. There are also perpetuators, distinguished from perpetrators, and accomplices or people who are complicit. There are descendants. These are all jumping off positions to think about how to enact collective, albeit differentiated responsibility in the face of the enduring systems of violence, oppression, and inequality that militarism creates. So I wonder if you might elaborate a bit on this. The very particular way in which I've been thinking with Arendt's notion that politics is about the possibility to think from someone else's point of view, which is not literally that I can inhabit your experience right? I mean, the reality is we can't inhabit anybody else's experiences. I'm not sure why soldiers' experiences are the one dividing line. But that she's not calling upon you to inhabit someone. She's calling on you to make that imaginative leap, to try to imagine the world from someone else's perspective. And what I'm really trying to suggest there is that we refuse the assumption and the, in fact, statement that we cannot imagine. We cannot critique because we cannot put ourselves in that position. But somehow the soldier can imagine the civilian as they're critiquing the civilian, right? And part of that question of imagining is just the question of what does it mean to take this experience of violence, which isn't just horror when it comes to the soldier. It's also sublime. I mean, there's a lot going on here that isn't just about horror. And part of that 
requires saying that the U.S. is an incredibly not violent society. I and mean, let's just start with violence. The idea that the so-called American civilian has no access to violence is absurd. And then the question becomes, well, where do you draw the, is there something about war violence, which is entirely seen from the soldier's point of view, that is such a breaking point, you can't imagine a continuity. And there is, of course, some pushback against that. I think that that would be the beginning point of a different kind of politics, because it would require one not to let the soldier, whether as figure or person, dominate this conversation and to open up the possibility of an actual political, as you say, I mean, you put it much more bluntly than I do, and I think, well, that we're depoliticizing war and military that one can't allow that happen in the name of a kind of moral good. Next, we'll hear from Thomas Dodman, assistant professor of French at Columbia University. His first book, What Nostalgia Was, War, Empire, and the Time of a Deadly Emotion, explores how people once died of nostalgia in order to tell a larger story about social transformation and alienation in the 18th and 19th centuries. He also co-edits the French journal Sensibilité, Histoire, Critique et Sciences Sociales, and serves on the editorial board of Critical Historical Studies. Here is Thomas Dodman. I'm going to focus on two things that I found particularly compelling and that lead to questions or desires for you to develop this a little bit. I was really struck by the nation that used sort of kind of unintended consequences or the funny kind of way in which social forces come together, mesh and produce unintended consequences. The, the way in which you describe the 80s conservative turn and how it manages to funnel together and put on the same plane both the traumatized soldier, a self-traumatized perpetrator, together with the victim of rape, who is not a perpetrator, but ends up being on the same playing field, all of this in a rightward drift towards being tough on crime. In other words, how progressive and critical endeavors get recuperated for an apolitical ethics of care. Now, this made me wonder why in the latter part of the book, you decide to focus very much on combat trauma and soldiers, therefore sort of abstracting, I felt a little bit from the more general talk of the empire of trauma, of the way in which our whole society is full of examples of trauma at this point and examples of victimhood or people who, who, who lay claim to victimhood. And so it felt to me that there was an attempt to isolate the case of the military Whereas your analysis up until that point had shown just how the different sort of social realms and different different factors could, could come together to, to change course of things. I was wondering just if you could tell us a little bit about your thoughts about our culture of victimhood today, as some people might put it. I'm being a little bit provocative here too, but is there a way in which we can, we can relate this book to that? The second question is about the historicity of, of war trauma, um, of the invisible wounds of war, which predate the discovery of trauma in the late 19th century, but that have always evolved in relation to the very forms of of military organizations and the forms of combat itself. Itself, the classical example being shell shock. In the, in the First World War, it was called shell shock because people associated it to the barrages of shells and the explosions and the, the commotion that it might cause. You do a bit of that with reference to these new forever wars with, with recurring tours of, of duty, a smaller army, and, and, and how this might weigh on the way in which we think of combat trauma today. You do a sort of what I would call a, a larger social grounding with regard to questions of this now being a volunteer armed force as opposed to an army of conscripts or, or, or the draft in a context of commercialized medical care, neoliberal turn in so many ways of moral humanitarianism, but also of sort of outsour increasingly outsourced and subcontracted wars and their references to that. And all of this 
ties to questions of citizenship, right? Or what, what citizenship might mean today. Now, that's interesting to me because the, the notion, the idea of, of, of citizenship for a very long time was tied to military conscription, to the, the obligation of being um, a, a soldier, which is part of the reason why men were full citizens um, before, before women in the logic of the time. And so I wanted you to, to think a little bit more about what is specific about our wars of today. George Mosser wrote a very influential book about the First World War and what he called the myth of the, of the, the war generation, whereby the, the, the memory of the First World War and also a little bit before that, the Napoleonic Wars, you could say, was preserved as a pristine memory of the sacrifice of these men that erased the violence so as to forge the myth of a nation and the, and the myth of a sort of a camaraderie of, of a band of brothers, so to say, which then led to the problems of the 1930s because of the, the brutalization of these soldiers that didn't get glorified. And so there we have a history of how war and military service feeds into forms of, of citizenship, of male, of male citizenship in, in particular, and in a way de-exceptionalizes what's happening today because the French memorialized their war dead. They didn't care much about the German war dead. And I mean, every village in France has a war monument with the list of its war dead, but not the German dead. And so I'm trying to think a little bit about what is specific to our moment, to our wars, to our concept of citizenship in a neoliberal, no longer mass conscription kind of world, but also what is perhaps the same, what, what hasn't changed so much. The book began with me noticing, sitting in New York as these wars continued to unfold, noticing two things, that starting with the first surge in Iraq, there was increasing coverage in the U.S. press about traumatized Americans. So it's not just in the press. I don't know. Think of any TV show made in the last 15 years. There are characters that are vets. They're all traumatized. Now, they may be it may be a story about them and their trauma, or they may just be a figure in it. But there's a kind of ubiquity of this presence. And the second thing that really struck me, because I already knew some of the literature about the Vietnam War and post-Vietnam syndrome, was that they were never being explicitly named victims, but the imaginary in the grammar was one of victimization. It was always about sort of watching their buddy be blown up or being wounded. There was no talk about the possibility of being traumatized by moral transgression. So I started there as that there's something I can understand about this present moment and the representation and politics of the war at this moment through this fix. And the reason I went back was to sort of revive and resuscitate and not just for scholarly reasons, although I think the literature kind of misreads the 1970s, but also for political reasons, that there was an articulation of trauma then that was also deeply an anti-imperial critique. Right. Because a lot of what gets done, I mean, if you think about the talk today between the moral and the political, it's like either you can support the troops, but you can only do it by not politically criticizing the war. Well, that was not always the case. That's why. But that earlier part of the book is to think about how we got here and what other alternatives are possible. But what this sort of pervasive notion of this condition of victimhood or everybody being traumatized, the empire of trauma, I think it's the background noise against which this figure of the traumatized American soldier can operate the way it does. Because veterans and soldiers don't tend to appropriate in any explicit sense the position of being a victim, but implicit in this talk about trauma and obligation and witnessing is that notion. It's tied into this wider sense that we are all victim, we are all traumatized somehow, and it's because of its victimization. So I think there's a kind of grammar that undergirds this possibility, which is the larger empire that 
you're talking about, which I do also think is very particular and very powerful in the U.S., even though Didier Hassan and Richard Rechman's book is trying to talk about a global transformation, I think it's much, much more pervasive in the U.S. The second question about the historicity, what's specific about this? So the reason I get to the question of citizenship is because so much of the conversation then is what do citizens who have not served in the war owe to those who did? And of course, the relation between serving the military and citizenship as a kind of entitlement is not new, either as a welfare entitlement, but also as a kind of symbolic, what it means to be the iconic citizen. But what is different, and this is where you get this discourse about the military civil divide, which is so prominent, right, is again, less than 1% of the American population serves in the military. So it cleaves a kind of, the conversation about, it's not this general sense of men served in the military and therefore gained entitlements. It's this very particular subset of the population that the discourse has sort of stepped up and sacrificed, serve. And then you get these very different configurations of who is the iconic citizen, who is the super citizen, and who in fact has a kind of moral standing that the rest of us who apparently did nothing but shop at the mall do not have. So that's just a partial beginning to that answer, but I agree. I, I mean, one could go much further back than I did to tell this story. And partly it was a response to the literature. And partly I also want to say it was a response to the fact that there's also so much sort of quote unquote common sense in the U.S. today that the whole question of the military and the need to support the troops is haunted by the Vietnam War. It's haunted by the way soldiers were treated during the Vietnam War. And part of what I argue in the second chapter is haunting is not what's going on. It was a conservative reconstruction that rewrote the role of soldiers and veterans who were themselves. Um, you know, there was a lot of fragging. People were being killed. There was political opposition both within the military and within veteran communities that we do not see in any equivalent way today. So that's the other reason. And that is all the time we have for today. I want to thank Nadia Abu Alhaj and all of the panelists who were present at the event. My thanks to you as well for listening. Once again, today's episode was celebrating recent work by Nadia Abu Alhaj. The title of her new book is Combat Trauma, Imaginaries of War and Citizenship in Post-9-11 America. The SOF Heyman Bookshelf is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans at the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. Our theme music is Moonrise by Paddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. I hope you'll join us again next time.